1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Annabella Breck, and today we'll be talking to Martin Rizzo Martinez about his new book, We Are Not Animals Indigenous Politics of Survival, Rebellion, and Reconstitution in 19th Century California. Dr. Rizzo Martinez, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and I, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Um,
1: Martin, I'll let you kick things off today by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Sure. Um, let's see. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. Uh, grew up there, and you know, I was—I'm uh, a first-generation college uh, graduate, and so I wasn't necessarily drawn to college. But I, my interest in these topics, uh, kind of came out of my own family history. Uh, my grandpa was born and raised in uh, Gallup, New Mexico, and. I kind of grew up hearing about, you know, kind of colonialism, indigeneity, uh, kind of trying, you know, had a lot of questions about my own kind of family history. And uh, and this is what kind of drove me into uh, going into college. Um, I eventually uh, finished my PhD up at UC Santa Cruz uh, and had lived in the area for a while. Uh, I worked with just some wonderful scholars. Uh, My main advisor was Elizabeth Haas who is really one of the preeminent uh, kind of thinkers about kind of this colonial California history. Uh, I worked very closely with Amy Lone tree as well. uh, And Matt uh, O'Hara, a lot of other folks too. So I really just had a lot of great uh, support and, you know, had a lot of questions uh, about, you know, trying to understand uh, indigenous history in California, which is, um, yeah, the, a field that I, I think is still really ripe for for so much more scholarship and uh, focus on.
1: Yeah, as you just mentioned, the literature on Native California has really become this distinctively rich body of scholarship that's been increasingly attentive to Native survivance across multiple colonial periods. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk about what prompted you to write We Are Not Animals and how did your project take shape? Yeah, well...
0: Absolutely. I think, um, you know, especially in recent years, you know, the the scholarship on Native California has really grown. Um, and my work builds on a lot of the previous scholarship that's really kind of helped lay the groundwork for understanding this history. Um, but one of the things with, with scholarship on Native California is there's there's a really uh you know a shortage uh, there's not many uh first-hand accounts of native people especially during the early kind of mission era the spanish colonial era and so while there's a lot of studies out there very few of these these studies uh you know on the early spanish colonial era really get into the specific stories of indigenous individuals or families and most of them have been really these kind of broad demographic studies um And so, you know, there's some exceptions to this. There's uh, Quincy Newell's Constructing Lives at Mission San Francisco uh, and some of the archaeological work, uh, people like Randy Milliken and I mentioned Beth Haas. So there's some exceptions, but for the most part, um, you know, there really isn't a lot of this kind of uh, centered on Native perspectives. Most of the studies really are more about Spanish colonialism, which is great and important. Uh, But I really sought out with this to try to center Indigenous experiences uh, understanding Indigenous perspectives of this history. Um, and so that's what I focused on. And, of course, this started as my dissertation that I worked on uh, for many years. Um, and what I did with that is I I really dove into uh, the chancery archives. So every mission in California, uh, like missions throughout the Spanish colonial world, um, kept really meticulous books on baptisms and burials and um, uh confirmations you know all of the kind of catholic ceremonies marriages um things like this and so those records um i really argue in this that that those records constitute indigenous archives um while they're written you know by franciscan hands or the people who are writing them but they're informed by indigenous peoples and so the information that's contained in those records really reveals a lot about kind of the extended um, tribal networks and kinship networks and things like this and so I put together um, a lot of these records, thousands of these records. um, And of course I was able to do this partly because others have uh, digitized some of these and made it a little more accessible. Um, But I put these together um, and I I really tried to triangulate and understand kind of the the networks, indigenous networks that existed within the missions uh, and the diversity of peoples that were impacted by Spanish colonialism during this period. And so by putting these records together, um, it allowed me to kind of cross-reference those with the letters and the different documents, right? the different archives, the Spanish, Mexican, and eventually the U.S. colonial uh, documents that came out of this period as well. And so by, by teasing out these you know, families, it allowed me to trace you know, what happened to uh, individuals and families after the mission period into some of these later periods as well. And so this is kind of what I what all went into the writing of my dissertation, which uh, I spent, of course, like everyone, uh, many years doing. But after writing the dissertation, what I did was I, I worked closely with uh, local Native partners, uh, in particular uh, members of the Amamutsun tribal band, which is uh, descendants, they are descendants of Mission San Juan Batista and from Santa Cruz. And I worked very closely with especially um, Ed Ketchum, who is the Amon and tribal historian. Uh, and Ed is a wealth of knowledge. And he uh, he generously read through my dissertation and sent it back to me with uh, pretty much page by page kind of feedback. Ah, things, everything I got wrong, everything I got right. Uh, and some, you know, some insights into, you know, his interpretation of, of that those histories. A lot of it was really uh, just incredible, and so I was able to kind of create a dialogue with Ed um, and work. And as you read through the book, you'll see there's all sorts of uh, you know quotations from Ed. Uh, I tried to you know kind of include his voice in there uh, with this. And I also worked closely with oral histories. So I mentioned before, there's not a lot of oral histories from the mission era. Um, fortunately, in Santa Cruz, there's uh, one extremely important uh, record. It's one of only a handful. Uh, first-hand accounts of people who lived during the mission era, and that's of Lorenzo Assisada. And that was a really crucial uh, record that that helped, you know, kind of illuminate a lot of things. Uh, but I also worked with oral histories that were conducted in the early 1900s uh, by ethnographers who came to the area. Um, so interviews by people like J.P. Harrington. Um, and one of the great ones that he did was he interviewed Maria Ascensión Solarsano, who I should mention is Ed Ketchum's uh, grandmother. Uh, So he had a lot of the information from her. But Harrington did, you know, thousands of pages uh, that he wrote of these interviews with uh, Solar Sano, who was, you know, fluent in in the Mutsin language and had all sorts of stories uh, from her time. So I really, really worked um, kind of post-dissertation and synthesizing and kind of adding in as many uh, perspectives and, and oral histories as I could possibly find um, that spoke to these histories and kind of shed light on on how Native people experienced um, these histories and what was going on at the time.
1: Your study begins with these deeply storied indigenous landscapes into which the Spanish arrive um, and establish Mission Santa Cruz in the 1790s. So let's start with how local indigenous peoples um, the Aptos, the UPI, the Kuros, initially respond to the establishment of the mission?
0: Yeah, and, and that's always a, a really important question. Uh, you know, What were indigenous responses to these missions? Um, and I think it's important to note that indigenous response was really as diverse as the different families and tribes and individuals uh, as well. So the, those responses weren't uh, kind of uniform, right? They were very different. And I should mention um, Randy Millikan wrote a groundbreaking study some 30 years ago now um, of Native people in the San Francisco Bay, a book called A Time of Little Choice. And Millikan argued that the dynamics of demographic movement into the missions was this complex combination of ecological, political, and social factors, Um, you know, the colonial disruption of this sophisticated society in the Bay Area, Um, and Ultimately, what Millikan argued was that it wasn't a forced conversion or relocation, but a more complex dynamic of push and pull factors. And I say that because you know that's that's a I think a foundational study on this. But what I found in Santa Cruz is that that the this was true uh, to for the most part in the very early years, um, and it changes crucially. And I'll get into that. But in the in the first years, you know, after the the establishment of these missions. Um, we have to really understand the impact of Spanish colonialism in the area. And so, you know, along with the Spanish came uh, herds of livestock, um, which of course set out grazing on what were really crucial grasslands um, that had provided uh, so much food and, you know, the resources needed for basketry, you know, Bay Area indigenous peoples have the most sophisticated and and beautiful basketry in the world, uh, according to many. And, uh, and this is because of their rich grasses and, you know, ways that they were able to use things. And, of course, these quickly were trampled as they become pasture lands uh, for the missions. Um, the, the missionaries also brought with them uh, it, agricultural crops like wheat, corn, beans, um, onions, right? And these required, you know, large, large lengths of land as well. that were, of course, you know, um, the Spanish didn't recognize that for Native people, they, they managed these lands with really complex, sophisticated uh, land management techniques. Uh, and the Spanish saw it as kind of um, wilderness or an empty wilderness. And of course we know today that that's absolutely not true, right? These are very carefully tended areas. So they, they completely disrupted uh, the environment, right? And this environmental disruption led to starvation and a lack of resources. Um, So when I started looking at the baptisms and people coming into the missions, what I noticed is that people arrived at the missions in much greater numbers in the winter times. Uh, And I think this correlates to the lack of uh, access to, you know, some of their food resources. And then as people would come into the missions and um, in particular, oftentimes it was the children who would be baptized first and that would get lured into the mission. um, The missionaries wouldn't allow them to leave uh, or at least not leave in any kind of uh, permanent way. They were required to stay at the mission so that they could receive Catholic instruction. And so as over time, larger numbers of native people would receive baptism. And I think for native people at the time, you know they had very uh, sophisticated uh you know religion and you know spiritual practices that were plural in the sense that they allowed for multiple teachings and multiple you know approaches to things and ceremonies uh practices uh and so i think for them they probably didn't see catholicism as this kind of unilateral uh way where it's like once you're baptized that was it right for catholics There were no exceptions you couldn't practice anything else Uh, and that's not the way that native people around here saw that and so they may have received baptism thinking okay i'll check this out not knowing that they wouldn't be allowed to go back to their homelands Uh, and so as the demographic shift would happen where you know a lot of the local tribes here were about 200 members roughly it's hard to know exact Um, but as say 50 70 members would be baptized and relocated to the missions it really devastated the ability of tribes to maintain their practices, right? Be it economic trade, uh, which was impacted uh, greatly, but also um, just the social, social world and you know political structures as you know leaders and chiefs were being baptized and lo- located. So it really devastated the society here and people's ability to kind of maintain the the networks that were required to have the society they did. Uh, and so over time this happens, but I'll also point out that it's really important that, that, you know, Millikan's study went up to the early 1800s. And again, he argued against this idea of force conversion, but what I found as my study extended to, you know, far beyond the missions is that after the 1800s, it did shift, uh, to become increasingly militaristic. Uh, and there is quite a bit of evidence I document in later chapters, especially, Um, of forced conversions where, you know, the Spanish uh, military would go in um, as the military presence grew, they would actually go and remove villages wholesale. Uh, And the priests write about this and celebrate it um, at times. So this, I think it's, that's one thing that I push back in this is that, yes, in the early parts, there was more of a push and pull and it had a lot to do with these complex factors. But as time went on, it did become uh, a more kind of uh, militaristic, more forced conversion thing. And I'll, I'll mention too that, you know, that with this this transition, you mentioned the Quirozde and the Quirozde tribe. Um, so they're one of very few that the Spanish wrote about as actually being a nation. They were the largest and most powerful of the local tribes. And one thing that we see uh, is that, you know in this early year um people would get baptized there at the missions but they would often leave the missions they would flee right they would go and become fugitives to the mission and there are letters that say that you know report that a lot of these fugitives from local missions including san francisco which is called mission dolores and santa clara and santa cruz were gathering up in this area of the kiddo which is in today's area we call ano nuevo and so the, the Quiroste kind of become like a refuge for fugitives from the mission. And two years after the founding, Mission Santa Cruz was founded in 1791. And two years later, uh, the Quiroste actually lead an attack um, where they burn down some of the buildings uh, and wound some of the, the soldiers who are there. Uh, and so so there was resistance uh, from a, a very early stage of people challenging this colonial encroachment as well.
1: Yeah, and that Quiroste-led rebellion was really just the start of indigenous resistance to Spanish incursion, which expands into the 19th century. And as you mentioned, as more people, especially alone people, come in contact with this, the mission and its reach, we see rebellious politics emerge both within and beyond mission boundaries. Can you tell us about how different modes of resistance to Spanish power take shape through the mid-1810s?
0: Yeah. And, you know, that's definitely one of the themes, you know, as I dug into this research, I found that, that there was, you know, there is resistance at every stage, uh, and people, you know, people challenged what was happening and fought back. And this is, I should note a, a myth I often hear, you know, were raised with a lot in California here with a lot of mythologies about what the missions were and weren't. Um, and I often have people, you know, ask that and say, well, why didn't native people fight back if they were so, uh, so difficult, Right. Um, and I, I guess I should mention, too, it's worth mentioning that um, that it, you have to understand the context of the missions, the in terms of survival and demographics. And, um, you know, when I when I looked at the numbers, uh, I actually did look at the numbers of baptisms and burials at all the missions. Um, but Santa Cruz in particular, um, over 90 percent of the people who are baptized died by the time the mission closed by the late 1830s. So the survival rate was less than ten percent. Some other missions, it's a little bit higher, but it's pretty devastating at all. Even if you take into account, of course, natural death of you know fifty-year-olds who are baptized in 1790, you know they probably wouldn't live to be you know ninety generally. But even with that, I mean, those numbers are devastating. And it's even worse when you look at the um, the children, the birth rates. And so I I looked at Mission Santa Cruz. And uh, there's about just under 500 children who are born at the mission. And of those almost 500, uh, over 50% of them failed to survive to the age of one. So died either in infancy or right away. And then another 20, over 25% died before reaching the age of five. So, you know, thinking about the the circumstances in the missions, right? You know, the children are dying. 75% of them do not survive past the age of five. I mean, it's a it's a very devastating space. And of course, that's a mix of factors of, you know, disease that's being introduced, um, you know, poor health factors, um, you know, treatment too, and punishment is is definitely a part of that. So again, coming back to the idea of resistance, I I just want to give that sense of people understand why, what is being resisted against. But of course, there's this outright attack that happens in 1793. Um, And then, the most famous uh example of this Mission santa cruz is in 1812 there's a padre padre quintana who is known for being particularly abusive he is somebody who has just fashioned a a whip with iron tips uh, onto it so that it cuts deeper into people um in 1812 he's he's beaten two young men nearly to death and this um kind of instigates a gathering where people call together about 20 young men and women, um, who have a conversation of, you know, what are we going to do? We know this because of, I mentioned the oral history with Sara and his father was one of these people. And so that's partly why his, his oral account is so important because it gives us a lot of insight. Um, and I did, my whole third chapter is kind of, you know, all about this assassination and it's so many, um, really fascinating aspects of it. Uh, you know, just a quick kind of overview of this, but, you know, one of the main people involved is a woman named Yakenensat, um, who actually is the one who comes up with a strategy, which is something she imports from uh, some of her experiences that she's witnessed or, you know, events that take place outside of the mission. And so there is communication of strategy and of um, tactics that, that pass over and throughout the missions, right throughout the area. Um, but, you know, beyond direct assassination which of course is resistance there's a lot of other ways that people are resisting uh and one of these is through i mentioned earlier flights and fugitivism but this is an ongoing issue um, and it's it's really underreported by the official documents Um, when i looked at the official records of the missionaries there's a lot of inconsistencies uh, in these reports Uh, for example you know, they'd always send in a yearly report and they would say, you know, how many Indians are living at the mission? Um, you know, all the things being produced there and stuff like this in 1797, they report that there's just over 500 native people who are living at the mission. And then what I found is there's a letter dated within just a few weeks of, of the, this report where they complained that there are 138 people who are fugitive. So Out of 500, you know, 138, that's over 25% of the population that is not actually there. Um, But they're reporting this, of course, to kind of maintain a particular image of this. So I think you see all kinds of this kind of inconsistencies. But in addition to ongoing flights of fugitives, um, there's arrests of cooks uh, for poisoning at Santa Cruz and elsewhere. Um, There's work stoppages and there's, you know, refusals to return Uh, Things like this are are kind of ongoing throughout this period. Um, But in addition to these outright things, there's also ways that people push back just through maintaining traditional ways. Um, There, And some of the uh, local archaeologists who've done this great work have shown that trade continued between mission communities, trade of of, uh, traditional uh, trade goods, even uh, kind of shells, which were used as money for going back for thousands of years. Um, and also tr- uh, the trade of you know traditional foods. There's coastal resources that are being sent from you know Native people who are stationed up in kind of the, the Nuevo area over to Santa Clara. Um, so there's you know ways that Native people are able to kind of practice their languages, their ceremonies, their songs, you know, and all this kind of outside of the gaze of the missionaries and their control. Um, so there's all these different ways, and I think finally on that. That point, I'll I'll just say too that you know again I mentioned the demographic uh, collapse and just the the amount of people dying there. So I think just surviving through this period was in its own way was really an act of resistance and rebellion, um, you know when you really look at it.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean that's that becomes abundantly clear from the details that you embed in those chapters on the Spanish colonial period. And by the 1820s, there's this transition to a Mexican period um, in California, which is gradual um, but impactful nonetheless. And you first look at how Yokut people who began arriving at the mission in the 1810s forged new political opportunities for themselves in these very adversarial circumstances. Um, This had really important consequences when the missions were eventually secularized under mexican governance so what changed and what continued during this long transition to mexican governance
0: yeah that's a great question you know i think the the mexican era in california history from 1821 to 1848 is really i think one of the least studied and and least understood periods and you know it's really important i think to to understand what was changing and happening there um you know, I mentioned earlier that you know my approach on this was really focusing on on tribal and kinship ties and family ties uh, within this really kind of increasingly diversifying uh, mission-based indigenous community. Um, and and by doing that, it really I was able to see a lot of kind of um, divisions and you know social and political stratifications that were happening within the missions. Uh, and as you mentioned. You know, by the 1810s it's when Yokut's people, and Yokut's people were a linguistically and culturally distinct uh, group of peoples, uh, independent tribes that lived up over, over in the San Joaquin Valley, which is um, quite a distance, you know, a couple hundred miles from the mission. And as people are dying, I mentioned the demographics, you know, there was a constant need from the missionaries to bring in new native people to keep those. If you were to look at the demographic numbers and like the population at the missions, they maintain a, a relative consistency despite all these deaths. And that's only because they're constantly finding new people to bring in there. And I mentioned earlier, by the time they're, they're starting to bring in Yokut's people, it's a, it's a much more militaristic engagement with them. Um, and there is a, a back and forth as soldiers are going out into San Joaquin Valley and bringing people back. But one of the ways that they found, uh, this is one of the things I argue here is that at mission Santa Cruz, and I know it's different every mission, but one of the ways that they found to, the missionaries found to uh, kind of entice the Yokuts people to stay there and not return, because again, fugitivism is always a problem, is they gave them certain powers um, within the mission communities. So the by the 1820s, it is the Yokuts people. Uh, and keep in mind, the people who killed Quintana, which is this, in 1812, which is this hugely uh, impactful moments, right? The other missionaries refer to Santa Cruz as the mission of Padre Killers after Quintana's assassination. Um, It's all uh, local Ohlone people who are involved in that assassination. And so shortly after, they start empowering the Yokuts people to have control over this. So the Yokuts men in particular, of course, uh, is a patriarchal system that that is happening here uh, in contrast to the indigenous ways, which were not patriarchal in the same way. Um, but the Yokuts people start becoming the mayordomos, which is like the overseers. Basically, um, they're the ones who are kind of armed when there's a threat that occurs in 1817, um, when the pirate Bouchard passes by. When uh, when there's fugitives, they they empower you know a, a particular family and uh, actually it's uh, Coletto and his sons who were who were sent as the the people to go capture the fugitives and go bring them back right so so there's a way that that people are kind of empowered and particularly yokut's people and so how does this reflect in the changes well let's let's talk a little bit about what happens the changes that happen in the mexican national period so after 1821 of course there's this huge political shift in mexico as mexico becomes a nation and one of the things that happens in the 1820s is that this new kind of liberal mexican uh country um it pushes back on these colonial structures things like the church or the racial costa system right um, but this is happening in the center down in mexico city and even with this kind of well-meaning thing they're trying to uh, for example r- um, turn over mission lands uh, to native people that's the directive um but things don't really happen like that as you can imagine up in Alta California so despite you know there's a call to emancipate native people from the missions and give them these lands and what happens is that the lands start being given to wealthy California families californios are the kind of spanish mexican families who have kind of um you know settled in the area the settlers there and they're given most of these lands um kind of predictably, really. Um, But there isn't this changeover to Native people. Uh, And in fact, it takes until 1839 when the California governor um, sends Hartnell over from mission to mission to check on the transition. You know, have things been handed over? Have Native people been emancipated? And what he finds is, in his report, is that no, it hasn't happened at any of the missions. Uh, When they come to Mission Santa Cruz, you know, some of the people, including one fellow, uh, Shiguit, who's baptized as geronimo uh you know he he hartnell notes that geronimo says uh he's tired and he wants his lands he wants to be free from the mission Uh, and so it's really 1840 when that finally does happen and by then most of the mission lands have been given away and so there's not a lot of lands that even are an option to give to native people but there are in santa cruz there they're developed really quickly two kind of reservation areas where native people move to that are just adjacent to the mission um, and when I, because I was able to trace out the families beforehand, I was able to see, you know, look at the census data and see who was, uh, had moved to each of these different regions. And that's where I found that, that it was divided really around, along these ethnic lines, the Yokuts people, um, there's some exceptions to this, but for the vast majority of people who are living behind the mission in the former, uh, orchard lands that are come to be known as the Potrero, um, which eventually gets known in Santa Cruz as kind of the local reservation. Um, those are the Yokuts people. In fact, there's a newspaper account in the 1860s that mentions that those lands were given to some of these people for their service to the missionaries. And that's a reference to the Yokuts who had worked you know, for for the missionaries at the time. Uh, and then the other uh, chunk of land goes to more of the the uh, Awaswas and uh, uh, Mutsun-speaking Ohlone peoples. Uh, who end up over there and those lands get very quickly get bought up by incoming americans um which you get to but one final thing i should note on this is when we talk about the you know the yokuts kind of being put into this position of power i do think it's important for people to understand too um it's kind of like you know there's parallels of course it's different from southern plantations but there are parallels with the missions and you know, I know there's been some recent studies looking at um, some of the overseers on the plantations and understanding that, you know, that and when when survival is no guarantee when the conditions are so harsh that it's we can't you know it's hard to judge the the choices that people make to try to make it through there. And so I think it's a really complex situation where people are really pitted in this in this difficult thing. They describe their homelands. Uh, as a as a graveyard at one point the san joaquin valley uh, malaria passes through so there aren't a lot of alternatives for people to do it's like you know can you work with the missionaries and try to figure out a way here uh, it's it's a very difficult time where where survival is is um, is something that is is being fought for
1: yeah and the and the communities and families that do survive by the 1850s they are confronting a wave Of unprecedented numbers of settlers um, after California statehood. So after this decade of kind of limited and piecemeal land distribution, a new colonizing power arrives in California. And in the next couple chapters, you explore how American policies effectively collapse these categories of Indians and Californios into one class. Can you tell us about how Americans both ideologically and literally engaged in this process of indigenous erasure?
0: Yeah, you know, erasure is is a real thing. And anyone doing this kind of research, uh, I think, you know, this is no new news. I mean, it's finding, locating people in in the historical records, you know, marginalized communities uh, is really difficult sometimes. And really, it has to do with the nature of colonialism. And I think, you know, it's it's important to understand that the colonial approach basically involves the importing of ideas, perspectives, you know, ways of knowing, ways of doing things, um, ways of seeing, and, and using the kind of the mindsets to that comes with the colonialist uh, to interpret their new surroundings, right? Their new environment. So in this case, you know, the the this diversity of primarily europeans uh and kind of westward moving uh u.s citizens that are arriving in great numbers um which of course it's more complex than that but this is that later wave of the gold rush um and they of course are bringing with them their ideas of race and identity um that they understand from their experiences and it's very different you know the spanish and later mexican california understands indigeneity through this long history of spanish colonialism in the americas and in in that spanish colonial world there is all sorts of degrees of difference and uh you know that i mentioned earlier is costa system of you know people have degrees of indigeneity or you know and for for most of the settlers you know the the missionaries themselves are typically from spain but most of the people who are settling into the pueblos right the Right next to Mission Santa Cruz is uh, one of the early pueblos of Villa de Branciforte. And the people settling at the Villa, um, most of them are some degree of indigenous or African even uh, in their ancestry, right? So there's a, a complex identity uh, of their own. And, you know, I'll give you one one specific example that I looked at. Uh, and there's a, a fellow who moves into the Bay Area and eventually lives in Santa Cruz who's named Macedonio Lorenzana. And Lorenzana arrives in the Bay Area in the early 1800s as a 10-year-old orphan who's sent up from Mexico City. Um, he's sent from the Lorenzana Orphanage, uh, along with a bunch of other orphans to kind of help populate up here. Um, in the early records, he's identified as Mestizo. Uh, he's mixed indigenous and European heritage. Um, and he's noted as, as being dark-skinned, right? Um, he works as an orphan. He works as a servant in the wealthy Castro family. Uh, and he eventually works on his way up into this California society, um, and eventually becomes the second alcalde. So he's a, kind of like the vice um, mayor of the Via de Forte here in Santa Cruz. And Lorenzana, he ends up marrying a native woman from the Santa Clara area, Maria Romualda. Um, and he's he's really kind of a man of of some standing. He's not a wealthy person, but he's he's definitely has some you know standing and, and respect in, in Mexican California. But after this transition to US statehood in 1850, there's a court case, I think it's 1851, where Lorenzana was called in to testify about a land dispute. And he had been the second alcalde during this these land grants, so he knew kind of where the divisions were. He was involved with the writing of this. But in the court records, the transcriptions show that that he Lorenzana is interrogated about his racial identity. So they ask him these questions about whether he's an Indian and he he very proudly proclaims that he is uh, he says that he is uh they say how do you know you are he says well i'm from the great indian kingdoms of mexico um and i know that i'm indian because i come from these you know and so he has this kind of pride about his identity and he doesn't really back down from this um, but of course in american courts at the time indians aren't allowed people of the category of indian aren't allowed to be witnesses uh, and so he's he's struck from the court records and they decide that he's incompetent because he's an indian so here's this guy who had this standing in the american world right the society he loses his standing um he loses his house uh, within a year after that he ends up selling his house to the court stenographer the same guy who's taking these notes and it's possible you know native people weren't really allowed to own lands for the most part so it's possible that we don't know the circumstances of the sale but um, it's it's safe to guess that possibly stuff like that happened. So that's one example, but you know, there's other examples of racial too. And I think uh, you know the census records are, are really important ones to look at. Um, first of all, you know the census American census records of the last half of the 1900s are are really uh, pretty terrible at recording not only Indians um, but also. Um, You know, part of the Latino community, the Mexican-American community at the time. Um, And they're, you know, for example, you can just see through looking through these, um, most of these families are listed with the males listed as Jose and the females as Maria. Um, So there's an erasure of people's names. It's really difficult for historians to trace through these because um, you'll find better records at the churches, right? At the Catholic churches there who actually kind of are more familiar with the community. Um, But most people are, you know, the enumerators are not really getting this. uh, And they, they aren't really asking people and they're just making assumptions. And, you know, it's worth noting that at this time period, there are in the early American state of California, there are laws that, are legalize the killing of native people um, reimbursing militias at the time scalp bounties that are going and you know native children are there's legally legal methods for native children to be kidnapped and put into families to work there's the indian indenture act of 1850 that you know lasts for a while and so being native being considered an indian during this time period is not great at all it's it's safer to be considered mexican and so um, you still hear from a lot of contemporary native families that say, yeah, we were taught to identify as Mexican, not as Indian. Uh, and so there's, this erasure happens. And, you know, one last example on this is I found a, a newspaper report where there was a local census enumerator, um, based out of Watsonville. And he's speaking about the 1860 census. And he basically says in the newspaper, his quota is saying, uh, Something to the of, before I finish my accounts, I received instructions that Indians who are not taxed should not be enumerated. Consequently, there are a great number of Indians that I could enumerate. So he even admits right there that he's leaving people out of there because it doesn't match with the tax records and what they're trying to show with the population. So there's, I mean, just very direct admitted erasure that happens as well.
1: When indigenous peoples are placed at the center of history, we see how American settler colonialism for all that it tries to destroy and all the people it tries to erase is ultimately a failed project because indigenous peoples refuse to be erased from their homelands and from historical narratives alike. Through the end of the 19th century, native families in the broader Santa Cruz area adapted to further land loss and this legal and social discrimination that you talk about by moving and also by staying put. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us about why these modes of resistance and reconstitution were so wide ranging and why they're so important to learn about today.
0: Yeah, you know, this is a is such an important question. Uh, so I'm glad you're asking this, you know, here in California, as you know, uh, the story of California history has really been dominated by Franciscan scholars over 100 years ago, who, you know, taught that California history began with the missions. They taught, frankly, harmful lies about this idyllic and benevolent mission system that, you know, raised Native people without any culture and society. Again, this is what the the story that's been told, right? Um, And so, you know, today there are mission bell markers that dominate the landscape here. Um, All sorts of symbols and references to that particular era because this has been the official uh, story that's been told and for many native californians today uh, not all of course there's diversity of uh, perspectives but for many these markers and and this presence of this kind of celebration of uh this pastoral you know spanish C- california history is in this imagined history and these false narratives it, they often bring up painful reminders of this this colonial control and the the traumas the violence of this Uh, that their families have endured um you know and i I often hear people talk about how you know this idea of like you know history goes to the winners and you know the missions destroyed and defeated native peoples and well there there absolutely was a devastating uh loss of of you know people and culture from that times i think it's worth noting that 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 absolutely didn't happen Uh, native people uh are still here today the missions closed you know almost, uh, 200 years ago, 1840s. Um, so native people have endured, they did outlast these institutions and they're still here today. Uh, and they're very present. So, um, so I think that's even a false narrative that we look at. So why is this, you know, important to, to understand this history today and how people survive? Well, native people are, are still here. You know, some, you know, there was a lot of tactics that native people took to survive those areas, uh, eras, uh, and colonialisms, but you know, some formed community and found other indigenous survivors of the mission era, uh, in their areas and built communities there. Uh, and we see this today with groups, like I mentioned, the Amamutsan tribal band, uh, who had gathered mostly in the San Juan Batista area, or there's also the Moekma, um, group, which is another large tribe today whose families joined together in the Pleasanton Alassal areas or you know, in the Monterey based families that, you know, form today, the Ohlone, Kosano and Esalen nation. Uh, and those are three of like the large ones, but there's also a bunch of other uh, groups too today, like the Ramaytush, uh in San Francisco. There's the confederated villages of Lishan and the East Bay, Tamian nation in Santa Clara, multiple Rums and tribes. Uh, and then there's families like the Sayers family in Indian Cal- Canyon in and a holster. Uh, and they've been in the area since fleeing from mission San Batista many, many years ago. So there's many different ways that people took to get, you know, to, to find ways to survive. Uh, but I think what's really important is that, you know, native people are still here today. And many of these groups are fighting to protect sacred lands right now, or to protect burial sites, uh, or to, you know, relearn their language in many cases, or, you know, keep, keep their ceremonies going and gathering. So I think, you know, when it all comes down at the end of this, you know, like, like many people listening to this, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a researcher who lives on lands that are not those of my ancestors. Um, and you know, it's important for me, you know, I live in this area. I love California. It's beautiful here. Um, but it's important for me to, to learn. And I think for all of us to really, to learn about the people whose lands we're living on, um, and to seek them out today and to listen to them right. Right now there's more of an interest. I think, uh, fortunately there's there's more of a platform and native people are kind of speaking out on things uh and i think it's really important for us to support their causes and you know here in santa cruz the the vast majority of native people who whose ancestors lived here they can't even afford to live here today um you know you talk about gentrification i mean that's that's what happened in california a long time ago right um the mission mission surviving communities they for the most part most of them are not federally recognized so they don't have a land base so i think that's why you know it's really important for us today to be conscious of this and to understand this history understand the the ways you know the the ingenuity and the resilience and strength of of these these folks and what it took for for them and their ancestors to make it through really difficult times uh, i think at this point you know it's really time for us to to listen to them and and to work in solidarity and support the causes that are important to them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's true in California and true across the United States for sure. Well, Martin, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but before we wrap up, I just have one last question for you. What are you working on now?
0: Well, thank you. I, I'm working on a lot of things. Um, I'll share with you a couple of um um, I, first of all, I'm, I'm co-producing a, a podcast. Um, it's called Challenging Colonialism. And it's, it's now on all platforms, uh, Apple, Spotify, everything. And basically what it is, it's not a lot of me speaking. I do the interviews. Um, but it is, uh, I interview uh, Native California folks and some allies uh, on issues that are important to them. So we've done issues about this movement to remove the mission bells. Uh, From California about the the fight to protect shell mounds. Um, We have an episode that's the final part of it's coming out right now about the movement to remove dams and protect salmon. Um, I'm interviewing people right now for an episode on boarding schools, uh, California ones looking at Sherman and Stewart Indian schools that had a lot of impact here. Uh, and all sorts of, of different things. So there's, that's one project that I, I really enjoy. And again, it's really centered on helping to amplify and augment Native voices and uh, help people to understand what's going on for them. Um, I'm also, I'm working on a film. I'm helping produce a film uh, that follows the story of uh, some friends of mine. These uh, uh which is a tribe down in LA area. Um, a woman, uh, Caroline Ward and her son Kagan, who, back in 2015 in protest of uh the canonization of Junípero Serra which was very controversial here um Caroline and Kagan decided to walk from mission to mission from Sonoma uh, from the top of the missions down to San Diego um and they along the way they met with uh different tribes they contacted the tribes as they passed through and they held ceremonies at each of these missions and um really this uh, an incredible experience and I kind of helped them out with uh, doing some research along the way and became close with them. And they asked me to help them kind of document this and turn it into a film. So I'm working on that. And uh, I am working on book two, which is uh, a little different. A departure. I'll come back to the early colonial stuff and later projects that I have in mind. But um, the second book is, is looking at um, kind of the red power movement after Alcatraz. So a lot of you know, for good reason, a lot of people have focused on Alcatraz and this movement, uh, you know, it happened there in 1969. Uh, but there was a lot of movements in the 70s in California that were really kind of laid the groundwork for protecting grave sites. Uh, and I start by looking at a movement that happened at Watsonville where there was a grave that was being disturbed and uh, some local Native uh, families uh, occupy the area. And it turned into an armed confrontation. It was on a place called Lee Road and uh, 1975, so people referred to it as Wounded Lee, uh, kind of a little reference to Wounded Knee. Uh, but the, the National Guard was brought in, and there was this armed confrontation. And people haven't really talked about it. It was over very quickly, but it, it really did kind of start people. Um, and nowadays, we have uh, it's required for Native monitors to be on archaeological sites or development projects. And that really kind of came out of this moment and some of these other movements. So that's that's the second book that I'm working on right now.
1: Those all sound like amazing projects that I'm definitely planning on listening to and watching and reading when they when they all come out. Um, thank you so much for sharing that, Martin. And thanks so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care.
0: Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. And uh, I'm such a fan of this series. So it's really great and an honor to be able to be part of it. So thank you so much for inviting me.